0: listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on New Books in Intellectual History, we have Dr. Paula C. Austin, who is an assistant professor of history and African American studies at Boston University. She is the author of Coming of Age in Jim Crow, D.C., Navigating the Politics of Everyday Life. Welcome to the show, Dr. Austin. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You're welcome. Coming of Age in D.C. is an innovative study that details the everyday lives of Black youth in Washington, D.C. during the height of the Jim Crow era. Using previously new and underutilized archival sources, Dr. Austin tells us this interesting story of everyday life in Jim Crow era, D.C., First, we will discuss Dr. Austin's biography and some thoughts on intellectual history in general. And then we will engage in a more detailed discussion of coming of age in Jim Crow, D.C. Dr. Austin, please tell us some more about your teaching and research interests.
1: Uh, Okay, so, um, well, I uh, graduated from the City University of New York Graduate Center in 2015 um, and before that, I got um, a master's at uh, North Carolina Central University in Durham, North Carolina, um, also in history. Um, so I, uh, my um, doctoral work was with uh, Herman Bennett. Um, and I also, I always feel like I have to shout out Herman because, um, because I was an Americanist who didn't really have a, uh, an advisor. Uh, while I was in my doctoral program. And um, so Herman Bennett sort of rescued me. Um, and of course, he is, you know, a scholar of the African diaspora. He's got two books on colonial uh, Afro-Mexico. Um, he's got a new book called African Kings and Black Slaves. And um, I also had an amazing uh, committee of uh, interdisciplinary committee of folks. So I, I think I, um, my sort of, bio is one where I got the PhD in history, but the work that I ended up doing, uh, was incredibly interdisciplinary. So for example, Robert Reed Farr was on my, um, committee and, um, you know, and of course, uh, Africanists and Latin Americanists sort of work with a lot more theory than Americanists generally do. So, um, so I think I got like an amazing, um, Uh, education and kind of theoretical framing for the work that I was going to do. And so I, in terms of my, um, uh, so my teaching, my research interests are really uh, very broad and sort of they're in the intersections of urban women, youth, gender, recreation and leisure histories, uh, race and representation, um, social and intellectual history. And then I teach African American history, civil rights history, Uh, the history of social movements in the U.S.
0: Okay. So how did you come to study the history of African Americans in Washington, D.C.?
1: Well, uh, so I was in one of Herman's classes at the CUNY Graduate Center, and um, we were reading E. Franklin Frazier's Negro Family in the U.S. And uh, so Frazier has these incredibly long block quotes throughout the book, uh, that are not ascribed to anyone. Um, and so I was like, "Who? who is this person who is speaking? Like, where did this interview come from? And uh, one winter break, I had a little bit of research money that I'd gotten through the grad center. And I went to DC, I went to Howard, and I went into the Fraser papers because I was sort of like, I wonder who these folks are. And uh, I ended up finding the research that Frazier did for his book, uh, Negro Youth at the Crossroads, which was um, Crossways, I think, which was a book that was about uh, adolescent, black adolescent personality development. Um, And I found those, that file, and it's through that file that I found all of these interviews with young people and their families in DC that were taken between like 1936 and 1938.
0: Okay, so it's, I I didn't include a question about the archive, but if we have time, we could talk about uh, maybe the archive and reconsidering the archive, especially when you're doing interdisciplinary work. I like the fact that you also mentioned that, you know, the work really goes in many different directions, African American history, intellectual history, social history, urban history. So if we have a chance, we can weave in uh, a question related to that. So as you mentioned, uh, it's very interdisciplinary. And um, I always like to include this question on the show regarding intellectual history in general, because all history is intellectual history, if you, if you think about it. Because when we're doing political history, social history, we, we're interested in what people thought, what they said. And so how do we intellectual historians struggle sometimes with defining our field? And defining this phrase, intellectual history. Uh, And David Hollinger famously said, uh, or defined intellectual history as the history of of people who made a living by arguing. And so that's a particular conceptualization of intellectual history. And what you're doing is is bottom-up history, although you include some conversations of the elites here. So what is intellectual history? How, How do you define it?
1: Well, so I think what's interesting about that quote is the making a living part. I think for me, um, I think we all kind of make our living, right, if we think about that term broadly, um, with our intellectual capacities. And I think this was the thing that I became really interested in. So I think about intellectual history as kind of the history of knowledge production and the history of theorizations about the world. So, um, you know, I remember giving a mock job talk and my advisor saying to me, and we had an intellectual, a kind of prominent intellectual historian who was the chair of the department at the time and and a a traditional intellectual historian in a lot of ways. And he said to me, you know, you're going to get asked, why is this intellectual history? And you can't just say everybody is a thinker. But that is kind of where I land on this question. Um, I think everyone is a thinker and we all use our intellectual capacities, kind of the way we make sense of the world to inform how we interact with the world. And and that for me, that much of what showed up in the sources was the way young people were already doing this, despite the fact that we often think about them as kind of, um, you know, not intellectually evolved enough, like their brains and everything. And I think that was, so that's, so that's my definition. It's a, it's a definition that's about knowledge production and a definition about how we use that knowledge production, like in our individual lives and then in our interactions with the world.
0: Yeah. So I tend to agree with you. I think this whole idea that everybody has a capacity to think and I think many of us do rely on Gramsci's, uh, Antonio Gramsci's understanding of the intellectual. And he says in the prison notebooks, everyone has the capacity to think. There are different iterations, right, of, of what it means to be an intellectual, whether it's a public intellectual, we might say professional intellectual, people who are paid to think and write, or the, the intellectualism of the everyday, which is what we're getting into with your text later with some of the questions so i think you can say you know i would i would agree that you can say (laughs) everybody thinks right and so that becomes a point of entry and then we can break it down and say there are different um levels right organic versus public versus professional versus traditional so I, i i tend to agree with you And I think Um,
1: what I don't, I think the thing that I didn't, that I don't appreciate about a kind of traditional intellectual history is the hierarchy of which of those thoughts are more important. Exactly. And the, the, right, the written, right. And like, like, and then how those thoughts are used then also informs whether or not they're important. You know, thinking about kind of traditional intellectual historians who really are about not only the written word, but the written word of elites whose thoughts then become, you know, policy or, or anything else. And, and so I, I think I'm, you know, I'm definitely not comfortable with that definition.
0: Right, it's very elitist. It's also, I think one of the things you do with this book is, you talk about the everyday thoughts of these young folks, but you also bring in the voices of the elites, And sort of there's a, a balance between the two. You know, the professional versus the everyday intellectual are speaking through your text, which I think is an important contribution to intellectual history to to see, uh, you know, the side by side Mm -hmm. view Mm -hmm. of the everyday people and the professional. And it's the professionals who are making value judgments about the lives of everyday people. Right, right. So that's, I think, a core um, Mm. of your text. So how does the term intellectual relate uh, more specifically to your history of youth in Washington, D.C., if, if you could say more about that?
1: Sure. Um, so, yeah, I was looking at, you know, I sort of ended up because of what was in those sources, I ended up really being interested in how young, black, poor and working class people were understanding and theorizing Washington D.C. racially segregated Washington D.C. and the fact that D.C. was also the capital, um, and sort of in the midst of trying to figure out its own position in uh, sort of the a, a global, um, you know, the glow in terms of international their kind of international position, uh, but also the fact that they did not that what that Washingtonians did not have any voting rights. So it's this this. In- interesting city at this particular moment that is the capital of the US, but also trying to kind of position itself globally. And then there are all these folks who live uh, in that city at this particular time. Uh, And I think, you know, once I discovered what was in those materials, I became really interested in how young people, folks that we all, you know, who definitely don't have voting rights. So even if everybody else had voting rights, they would not have um, but who are incredibly politically savvy and politically engaged uh, in what's happening around them. The uh, re- The title of the dissertation was Narratives of Interiority. So I was, I started out being really interested in not just the everyday, but also inner life, yeah. uh, which is what the, you know, and subjectivity, which is what hearing their voices talk about the things that they were talking about um, kind of brought, to the forefront for me. So I, so for me, what I was interested in looking at was sort of epistemologies, you know, how they were knowing things, how they were making sense of things, self-reflection, subjectivities. And then because they are being interviewed in these sources, uh, kind of the ways that they're articulating their own ways of knowing their own analytic frameworks and, um, And the way they're navigating the questions that they're being asked. So that was part of of what I needed to work with was they were asked specific questions and then they answered those and then they also said other things. So uh, I was sort of, uh, so that, I think that's kind of my through line for uh, sort of thinking about what's the intellectual content here.
0: Right. I think the text is it, what it drew, drew me to the text is that I think it's inherently intellectual history uh, by, as you said, focusing on uh, knowledge production and how they thought and how they spoke back to the interviewer and uh, or back and forth. You know, and so you see. So this brings us back to that question where you seem to to, to suggest an intellectualism of the everyday. In your discussion of the the black youth in Washington D.C., and so, but also, I want to go back for a minute to a point that you're making about Washington D.C., which had begun to thrive as a as, as a mecca in its own right, maybe counter to Harlem. And we might have to, you know, as we be, have begun to rethink the Harlem Renaissance, I mean, D.C. is a is a center of black life that rivals Harlem. You know, many of the folks coming out of DC are, are going up to Harlem. So maybe we could segue and talk a little bit about that too.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, that was what was so interesting. I mean, this is also why there were sources. I mean, I focused specifically on the way Howard became the Howard University became kind of this hub of Black intellectualism. Um, mm-hmm. and at the time that even before E. Franklin Fraser is there in the sociology department, uh, there's an earlier sociologist in the sociology department who is doing all kinds of research about housing, about recreation and leisure, um, William Henry Jones. And so it is this place where there's a lot of research happening, social science research, um, you know, but also Alan Locke is there. Um, you know, there's the, the law school is is prominent. Uh, Charles Ham- Hamilton Houston is there. There are lots of folks Doing a bunch of different kind of work that we kind of think about as early civil rights, um, new Negro movement uh, stuff. So, so in that way, there they are this hub. And there's of course like then around Howard in Northwest uh, DC specifically, there is also a big art scene. Um, and so, yeah, I think the the that was a, a smaller part of the of the book, but that is for sure happening. Um, it is another one of those communities that is incredibly rich in terms of black life.
0: Right. So, it's, it's just interesting because my, I'm working on a book right now that looks at, uh, sort of the connection between Howard university and Columbia university and folks who are, who are trained at Howard as undergrads, uh, many of whom, you know, the Clarks, maybe Kenneth Clark ended up at Columbia Uh, Marion Thompson Wright. And so I'm arguing for a sort of corridor between the two cities in terms of training. And then many of uh, these same people who go off to Columbia come back and teach at Howard. So this, I think, sort of falls into this, this whole discussion about, you know, the connection between the larger Negro Renaissance that expands into other cities. So I'm really, I know I'm pressing this question, but I, I think this is the what I love about the book is, um, you know, maybe elaborate some more on this conceptualization of Black youth as intellectuals. Say some more about what made them intellectuals.
1: Well, I think what was most surprising to me, although it shouldn't be because I have young people in my life, mm-hmm. um, what shouldn't have been surprising is just the kind of depth of thought and consciousness um, and ability to answer the questions that they were being asked. So, I mean, they were serious thinkers. They had pretty developed philosophies about themselves, about the world around them, about racial segregation, about racial violence, about economic discrimination, about uh, sort of family, about identity, sexuality, about education. Um, I mean, so I was just like, wow, in, you know, in a sort of way that I shouldn't have been, because I I should have expected uh, to see that. But I was really amazed and kind of impressed at not only the kinds of moves that they were making, and and I mean, moves like both kind of intellectually, but also uh, physical, right, in terms of their movement around this city that is, you know, that has all of these sort of geographies of containment because it is racially segregated. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then they're able to talk about those moves and to talk about why they do them. And so this incredibly kind of thoughtful articulations about um, essentially a kind of activism about space in particular, but then also an understanding of racial segregation uh, in, in ways that, you know, that I think maybe we don't expect young people to be doing. I mean, I think for as much as I, I worked with young people and kind of understood intellectual capacity, I think seeing it in writing, you know, in this historical way kind of made it so much clearer to me. And and it made me think, oh, yeah, no, this is missing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, the, I think it's important in terms of the uh, point you're making about we tend to overlook, young people as thinkers. You know, we sort of expect, hey, they have to be taught and trained to think by us, but they're actually doing a lot of thinking on the ground. So that's, I think, uh, another contribution of your work is youth studies, right? It also, it moves in so many different directions, but it also, I think, makes a contribution to the study of uh, youth and or children in history. And youth studies more broadly is obviously interdisciplinary. But I think that's an important uh, contribution. So my next question, uh, given that this history seems to be, in many respects, a bottom-up history of everyday people, uh, can you tell us some more about your approach to uh, maybe this study or history more generally, um, the bottom-up versus the top-down? Because I think you're doing a little bit of both.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think I started out doing... Probably more of an equal amount of both than what ended up happening, um, because it's true that Frazier writes this book about Black adolescent personality development, and um, and he misrepresents some of. I mean, what I learned once I started comparing what he included in the book and what he uh, what his interviewers actually took notes about and transcribed was that sometimes, and I think this was deliberate, he misrepresents what some of the young people said. And I think he does that deliberately because he's writing the book um, with a particular kind of political agenda to try to uh, get more federal funding for recreation and leisure spaces in the city. And I think, you know, nationally, because he does this project, uh, this project is happening in a couple of other cities um, and other regions, but then also to essentially argue against uh, Jim Crow segregation. So I understand his, I understood his political agenda and I was, you know, was not interested in kind of redeeming him. Um, But I wanted to lay out, and I do that in the, in an early chapter, I wanted to lay out a little bit about social science history and, and a little bit of the problems with some of its approaches that I think you know, I wonder if they can come through to the contemporary period in terms of how we think, we're think we thinking about the social sciences and maybe sociology in particular, although he, when Fraser was doing this, it was a very kind of multidisciplinary project. He had a, psychi- a, a psychiatrist on, sa- on staff who was also interviewing students. He had, you know, he, did, he was doing psychological testing for many of the people that were being interviewed. But I think that's, a, okay, that's a different thing that you're, mm-hmm. than you're asking me, sorry. Um so I think, you know, I remember early on in the research project that and, and in the writing that that Herman Bennett kind of warned me off and reminded me that I wasn't, quote, giving voice to anyone, um, which I, I know is some of the language that that we use sometimes. And he was really adamant to, to like remind me, like, these folks already have voices, they don't need you to like come in here um, mm-hmm. and do that. And and that really, if anything, I was trying to sh- to kind of shine a spotlight on on this idea that they were thinkers, um, and that I was also doing this other thing, which I just talked about, which was kind of interrogating social science and sociological research, and kind of questioning and problematizing uh, their approach. But that really, what I was what I was doing was trying to highlight young people as uh, folks who were capable of theorizing. Um, and and who we should be sort of looking for material that 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 brings this to the to the forefront for us. So I think in terms of methodologies, the, the things that really the way the approach that really became important was, was sort of the approach that slavery studies folks are are employing. Um, and of course they have so many less sources than I do, but you know, they problematize and interrogate their sources in ways that I found to be so incredibly useful. Um you know, Jennifer Morgan's work and Marisa Fuentes and, and uh, Jessica Cruz's work and Cydia Hartman and, you know, where they talk about ar- archival silences and absences and and also reading against the grain. And of course, um, Jess Cruz talks about appreciating that if something is missing from the archives, it could actually be for a liberatory reason that somehow, you know, this group of folks or these individuals kind of stayed out of the contact with the state. So the state couldn't actually, right, archive anything about them. So this, so I think I was just, I was, I mean, and this is why having kind of an interdisciplinary array of like mentors and, um, you know, scholars, it was so important to me because I did get an opportunity to, to, to really be creative and innovative about how I worked with the sources.
0: Right. I think at its at its core is it's intellectual history because intellectual history is uh, inherently interdisciplinary. And I think your focus on knowledge production and you know trying to substantiate the fact that these young folks, you know, think about deep things and they have the capability to produce knowledge. And then um, so I think that's why for me the book is this inherently intellectual history because it, it, it's looking at, you know, thoughts, on multiple levels and knowledge production of the everyday, of the elites. And then they, that gets parallel. I think, as you just said, too, you also give us a history of social science. I mean, that's, that's sort of, in some ways, it's two books in one where that could be in itself just a history. You know, it's sort of, History of the elites and what they're thinking, and then the value judgments they make and why they make those judgments. I think that's you know a, a, sort of a um, one of the sort of brilliant aspects of the book as a whole that you're doing many things at once, and you've got into sources, so I think that's our next question, F- flowing from approach to uh, sources. what about sources? You seem to use a a, w- a wide range of sources to tell us um, maybe tell us more about this, you started to um, mention some of the sources.
1: Well, you know, of course, I wish I had used more sources. And I wish that I that my despite the fact that I was very cognizant of a particular kind of methodological approach, I, I still think I made some assumptions about, about what was happening in the sources. So um, so so E. Franklin Frazier does this research project for uh, Negro Youth at the crossways. The book comes out in 1942. He does this research from about 36 to 38. Um, and he has a, a, a team of researchers that uh, work for him and that go out into different communities and interviews uh, young people and then their family members. And then there are some community interviews that happen for this project as well. And the um, two uh, researchers that he has working for him, one who's interviewing young women and one who's interviewing the young men, both actually have longer term relationships with the uh, young people. Like one of them was a worker at the um, Southwest Settlement House. And he had done like trips with, with a lot of the the boys. And so the boys sort of knew him. So I think in this way, I was able to you know, in a way that we, we had to really kind of question the WPA narratives, which are which are happening at essentially the same time. I and mean, those interviews are also happening at, at about the same time. Um, these interviews, I felt like I could trust the, the content of them a little bit more because many of the young people had, um, you know, sort of longer relationships with the folks who were interviewing them. These were also African-American folks. I mean, they were often of a different uh, socioeconomic class or background. And they were definitely older, and most of them were had either been to college and were graduated, or were in college at the time, um, or getting a graduate degree. So, I mean, they were they were, and they were often folks who came from a different neighborhood than the young people did in DC if they were from DC. So, but they but the young people appeared to trust them, to have some trust, and to develop relationships with them over over the two years. In some cases, that these interviews were happening and that they were spending time together. Um, so I was able to trust the content a Mm. little bit more. Um, but I also needed to try to figure out, you know, some other ways of getting to like what's happening in those communities. So, um, there were some other, I tried to kind of gather some other reports, which of course Frazier was doing. So all of that stuff was in his paper. So he was also collecting, um, information so that he could kind of triangulate his data, so that was very helpful to me. Um, and then uh, some newspaper sort, some newspaper um, reports. But I, you know, I think I wanted to, I wanted to challenge the sources. Um, you know, because the the interviews are the interviewers are writing down the answers that young people are giving them, that parents are giving them, that community members are giving them. Um, and I think there were times when I was able to piece the different parts of the interviews back together. So when I found the sources, they were the interviews were broken up into answers to particular questions and they were all coded. So nobody's name was on them. So I essentially had to put all of those uh, individual answers back together um, and then find the key that had everybody's name and address on it. So it was a little bit of a, a kind of reassemblage process, putting the puzzle back together, and then trying to read those interviews holistically. Um, and I still, you know, I still think I missed a couple of marks in terms of of believing interviewers and their notes um, at times when maybe I shouldn't mm-hmm. have. Yeah,
0: that's a lot of work. That definitely, <laughs> seems
1: yeah. Like- Yeah, I mean, here's just one story about that. I found, um, so one of the uh, young people was interviewed and um, tells this amazing story about uh, swimming in the Lincoln Memorial Reflecting Pool. And when I first found that interview where the young person is talking about kind of challenging the cops who are trying to get them out of the, the pool, I made assumptions about the gender of this young person. And I remember giving a paper at an internal conference at the CUNY Graduate Center. Um, And I may, I assumed that this was a boy. And when I finally found the key, which probably happened like a few months after that uh, it was a 14 year old uh, young person named Susie Morgan who. um, And so I was like, Oh yeah, Paula, you need to check all of your assumptions. What are you doing?
0: Interesting. So here's uh, coming to our last question. Uh, so young people as thinkers, theorists, and critics uh, is a perspective that seems overlooked in youth studies. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, what are your thoughts about that? I think um, you know, what would you say? Do we do we have enough scholarship on young people as thinkers and intellectuals? I feel like mo- much of that work is maybe social history mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and or cultural history, but yeah, but to posit. Young folks as thinkers, theorists, and critics—maybe as thinkers, but theorists and critics—I, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm wondering your thoughts. That you come across any uh, secondary sources mm-hmm. or work that even, you know, suggests this?
1: Yeah. Well, I think so. I think yes. To do we need more scholarship? Yes, um, absolutely. I think we don't have enough. Um, I think there's contemporary work on young people as thinkers, theorists, uh, and critics. Um, so I'm thinking of, like, Candy Taffy's work with um, the Soul Hot organization, uh, Saving Our Lives, Hearing Our Truths, Ru- Ruth Nicole Brown. I think a lot of the, like, girls, girlhood studies folks mm-hmm. um, are are really, are doing this, are getting to kind of inner life and um, intellectualism of young people. I mean, I don't know that they're, identifying it as that. Um, but they are talking about things like decision making, capacity, et cetera. Um, but to your point, right, these are not histories necessarily. And then there are other folks who are doing childhood histories. Um, you know, and and a lot of that work was incredibly influential to me. like um, uh, Lakeisha Simmons book, for example, we were on one of the first, one of my first AHA panels. Uh, together. And, you know, I was really influenced by that and sort of waiting for Crescent City to come out. And, and, um, of course, um, uh, Chatelaine's book. So that, and that stuff is um, maybe more social history. And although I think it gets to, we do kind of hear young people articulating ideas in there, but I don't know that that's what the books were trying to look at. Um and, if, but then I think, so I think I kind of took those really important uh, childhood uh, histories, girlhood histories, girlhood studies books, and then put it together with the, towards an intellectual history of black women that came out uh, by Mia Bay and Fair Jasmine Griffin, Martha Jones, Martha Savage, um, Barbara Savage. Um, I, ki- I, so I did this like, you know, mashup of those to, to be able to do what I did in, um, in coming of age, because they were really arguing in the, in the towards an intellectual history of black women, they were really encouraging us to think differently, maybe, maybe more inclusively about what intellectual history, history is, and then where we might go to find it in the historical sources. Uh, and so I, so I kind of like in, you know, it was, it was a lot, it felt like a lot of moving parts and I don't know that I did it you know, exceptionally well, but I wanted to try to like, you know, bring those pieces together.
0: Yeah, I think you did a good job of uh, of it. I think, um, I feel that maybe hip hop studies is a place, uh, you know, recent American history where a lot of this work is, uh, seeming to emerge and particularly looking at just, uh, while you were, uh, talking, I just thought about memes. How young people use memes and and examining those as intellectual thought, uh, you know how they put them together and think through making statements through memes and social media. You know, recent American history I could see more when we talk about sources and evidence. You know, what were young folks thinking in 2019 or 2020? And um, so I could definitely see uh, this sort of approach being more applicable to recent American history. So oh, uh, lastly, uh, tell us some more about your future research projects. Anything uh, interesting you're working on now Well, um
1: I have a bunch of simultaneous things, um although you know at the current sort of pandemic crisis moment, I'm not sure that any and none of them seem incredibly important right now honestly but um but that said, uh there are a couple of things that are kind of on the um Burners. I don't know if they're front or back burners, but so I'm. I've been working on. I mean, es- essentially, since I started the the book project, the uh, co- that becomes coming of age. I was working on, and so I continue to be working on a kind of digital uh, story mapping project about some of the young people in the books. I mean, the their, their use of space was so important, and then how they talked about their use of space was so important in their interviews and then in the book that I really wanted to try to figure out how I could uh, kind of visually um, do this. Uh, and and so I've been working on a, a mapping project. Uh, but that also means that I kind of, that I still need to figure out what happened to many of these young people, which was some of the research that I was doing at the end and that I, I'm still sort of doing. Um, so Myron Ross Jr., for example, his cousin, um, Catherine Nelson, who's like, 80 or 81 years old, just recently reached out to me. She found the book. She emailed me. We've been talking about Myron and their family. And I've I've made some plans to do some oral histories uh, to kind of figure out, you know, what happened to Myron after he was interviewed. Um, And, you know, I'm still sort of looking for for other young people to figure out uh, what happened. Because one of the things that happened in Southwest is that it is um, completely kind of uh, demolished in an urban renewal plan in DC and many people got scattered. And so I was interested in trying to figure out the impact of that, um, redevelopment plan on some of the young people in there. Uh, so, and then I've also been working on an article about an anti-policing brutality campaign that was happening in DC while the interviews were being done. So many of the young people and uh, adults who were interviewed talk about a big march that happens in 1938. Um, and I, for that, I'm kind of interested in the demands that were made by um, this interracial coalition of activists that was that was uh, kind of at the forefront of that fight, and uh, what kinds of changes the Metropolitan Police Department made. Um, what were the reforms that they implemented? But then, really, after those reforms are implemented, what really changes in terms of police violence and use of excessive force? And um, I think preliminarily, my findings are saying that. While some for reforms were made, um, many of those problems were not actually uh, solved. And then lastly, the kind of big, the biggest thing is a, is a second book project, which is an examination of um, self-care and community care in social justice movements in the late 19th and, and 20th centuries. And I think, you know, I think we have, a, we have some lessons to learn about what self-care and community care and uh, uh, sustainability really look like. Um, and I, this kind of comes out of a um, a challenge, I feel, or a, I don't know, problems that I have with the current kind of performative hashtags around self-care that I really don't think get at what self-care actually looks like and what it looked like for activists um, in our histories. So, mm-hmm. yeah, th- that's a lot. That's a lot.
0: That's great, though. A very uh, productive scholar. It's, um You know, it sounds fascinating, like fascinating work, especially, uh, you know, seeing what happened to the young folks that you talk about in this book. So, well, Dr. Austin, we have taken up enough of your time this morning, but I want to thank you for participating in this interview about your important book, Coming of Age in Jim Crow, DC. Thank you. Thank you, Dr.
1: Williams.